Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, we're talking about self-compassion. Self-compassion is not selfish. It is not an excuse to have some alone time. It is often a misunderstood part of health and well-being, especially in the eyes of parenting. So today to talk about some of the big misconceptions on self-compassion lifestyle, we are joined by a self-compassion coach, as well as running her own practice into meditation and mindfulness. Welcome, Beth Milner. Thank you so much for joining today, Beth. Thank you for having me. It is so good to actually talk about mindfulness and being self-compassionate. And I mean, we're talking about misconceptions in self-compassion and we're talking, a lot of people say that it is being selfish. It is sort of putting your own needs amongst others. It is taking time for yourself, which is, I think people see it as being selfish. People see it as being, you know, choosing yourself over other people. And it's so important for us to sort of get that misconception out of the way. And I'm so glad that we get to talk about that today. Yeah, me too. Um, So talk about a little bit more about your coaching as what you do talking about uh, self-compassion, also your guide into meditation and mindfulness. So how did you really get started into practicing that on your own? Um, I began my meditation practice in my late teens, actually, Um, but it didn't stick at that point, Um, which One of the reasons it didn't stick was because I had such a mean inner critic, which ties in very nicely with self-compassion. However, I didn't really learn about self-compassion for another 10 years or so Mm -hmm. on top of uh, from being in my late teens. So I learned meditation in a very traditional way early on in my practice, Um, but I struggled with it. I had such fierce inner criticism Mm -hmm. that I found this concept of trying to stop thinking, Mm -hmm. which was the way it was delivered to me at the time, impossible to work with. Um, I just found myself in an inner battle with my thoughts and I was perfectionistic. And so it didn't, it really didn't work for me uh, Mm -hmm. at that point. However, I was very interested in Buddhism. I was very interested in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And so though I wasn't meditating in my twenties, I still had that curiosity. Then when I started teaching as a primary school teacher, so this was in my late 20s, mm-hmm. I had a very difficult class. I was living in North London. I had many significant social and emotional issues with some of the children. Um, not my issues, their, <laughs> their issues. However, yeah. I will say I did have issues. Um, I, as most people, um, I think particularly with a British upbringing, Mm. uh, was not taught how to work with my emotional life. So trying to manage this difficult classroom became intensely difficult for my own nervous system. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate because at the time, uh, one of the parents was a psychologist. And she handed me a book, uh, it was Mindfulness for Children. 
Mm-hmm. And I started implementing some of those practices, very simple memory games, things like that, deep mm-hmm. breathing, lying on the floor, visualization, yeah. little practices for the children so that they could re- regulate and really then attune to their learning. Yeah. Um, so that was helpful for them, but it's also helpful for me because it yeah. sparked this deep curiosity about this practice that seemed to have such a strong effect on them. Mm-hmm. Um it also came at a time where I was having some own, my own personal problems. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, I didn't have a toolkit on how to work with my emotional life. Yeah. Um, my previous toolkit in my 20s was drinking heavily, mm-hmm. overworking, overexercising, under-eating, overeating, you name it, any mm-hmm. form of distraction really, mm-hmm. and lots of self-criticism. So... At this time, I had two miscarriages. So I had a miscarriage and then a, a follow. A year later, had another uh, miscarriage. Mm-hmm. So I was suffering. Yeah. I was deeply suffering and I didn't know what to do with it. And as anyone that's had a miscarriage will know, it's one of these strange, ambiguous losses that mm-hmm. nobody really speaks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's no real outlet for it. And I sought some support. So as well as taking up meditation, I also... In, brought back my yoga practice that had waned through my 20s mm-hmm. um, and I also sought the support of a therapist mm-hmm. and um, this was amazing because then I did fall pregnant yeah. and I had a successful pregnancy and I also had this practice yeah. of supporting myself emotionally, mm-hmm. meditation, yoga, uh, mindfulness and also seeing a therapist um, and I think when we've suffered deeply we become more compassionate mm-hmm. to other people who are suffering in a similar way. That's often yeah. the way that it works. Yeah. And so as I sought and developed these practices, I wanted to share them. I felt a deep compulsion to be able to share these practices that had helped me so much mm-hmm. with other people. Um, and this, and it also really supported me through my child rearing journey, early child rearing journey. Child rearing is a funny word, but <laughs> yeah. you know, early parenting journey. Mm-hmm. I needed to know how to settle and soothe myself and and therefore I could settle and soothe my children. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really amazing uh, to develop my own practice alongside sharing this and learning through working with other people yeah. who also you know need this kind of support and these tools. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you're talking about the lack of emotion, sort of being able to express emotion, because I feel like that's such a generational thing. Like a a lot of generations just don't know how to express emotions, especially no matter what, um, no matter where you grew up. I think a lot of the parents don't really share emotions, which don't really teach kids to share emotions. And it sort of just builds up for generations where we're not able to understand our emotions, we know what our duty is, we know what we're supposed to do, but we don't know what we want to do. And I feel like that's such a, um, such an element to focus on in self-compassion as well, where you're sort of understanding what you want and what you need and sort of taking away what is expected of you, especially no matter what ages or what stages you are in life, I feel like we sort of get lost in what we're expected to achieve by the time we're 20, what we're expected to achieve by the time we're 30. And we get lost in that um, rather than seeing okay everyone's by themselves everyone just has their own little journey there are people who are still single in their 30s or are still figuring life out in their 30s and that's an okay scenario but 
we sort of take it as face value being like, okay, they're just behind, they're far behind, they're not ready for, there's something wrong with them, there's something that we're not really accepting. And it's it's a really sad for this day and age where we're still sort of having those expectations, no matter how far we've grown. I think we've sort of, we're still behind in terms of managing what we want and what we need. Mm-hmm especially when it comes to self-compassion and meditation. I I will admit, I will have tried meditation in the past and I, similar to you, I've lacked that sort of way of just letting things be and just relaxing and just taking time for things because I like the hustle and bustle of life. And it's really hard for me to just sort of settle down and just breathe in, breathe out for a few minutes where I could be thinking about, oh, I could be doing work at this time or I could be doing something else at this time. So there's that huge um, lack of finding the need for it in life. And I think it's so good to be able to talk about how to find that need and how to find why it's important and including talking about some of the misconceptions that we sort of get when it comes to self-compassion. Like it's so hard to have the time for it as well like you can't find the time to be self-compassionate when you've got laundry piling up where it's like baskets of laundry around the house and that's what you could be doing when you're oh I'm gonna go get my nails done for a few minutes so that could be a time well spent doing something else so I'm so glad that we get to talk about that today and just sort of dive into it Um, but before we do we love to start off with a little icebreaker just to sort of get to know you a little bit more before we get to talk about the topic so just to share the first thing that sort of comes to your mind when I ask you these different questions. Um, so the first one is a favorite book of yours. Ah, the favorite book that comes to mind is mm-hmm. a book called the, um, sorry, Eternal Echoes by John O'Donohue. Okay. He's a theologian. He's, he's since passed, but um, he's a theologian, he's a poet, mm-hmm. um, and he's a philosopher. And this book, its subheading is The Hunger to Belong or Exploring Our Hunger to Belong. Mm-hmm. And it's just the most exquisite, thoughtful, spiritual book that yeah. has been an, an amazing support to me and actually came... I find, I find these kind of books that are like guides or lights that sort mm-hmm. of lead a path for you. And funnily enough, that but that book arrived to me because I'd read some beautiful quote that somebody had posted yeah. and bought the book. Um, and it arrived when I was still breastfeeding my my son. Yeah. Um, and so I'd read it when he was napping. Mm-hmm. And it was in, in fact that book that then led me on to many other books that made me just think I have to train to teach meditation. Wow. And I have to teach people how to be more attuned to their inner life. Yeah, that's it's so amazing how you can get that from just reading just um, reading a book and sort of figuring out that that's what you're meant to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't hear that a lot of these days. You hear, okay, I see a movie and I wanted to sort of reenact that, but then to get it from a book is a completely different, it's a different understanding, I think, to what we see and how we see the world and how we see society as well. I think we learn a lot from books, a lot more than movies rather than we so much more than we think, I think. Yeah, and I think particularly when the language is, is sort of poetic, it reaches us at a different level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think poetry has has a very different understanding to our way, other to our minds than what we are able to say. Mm. I think it just speaks volumes for mm. what we're trying to speak just a sentence for. <laughs> 
Um, so the next one is a favorite movie of yours. The favorite movie would be Cruella. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Yes. I I watched it with my daughter and it just was just brought us both so much joy. She's probably a bit young for it. She's not, she's only nine. Um, but she's very mature um, because there's some dark themes in it, but Cruella is just this fascinating character, um, played by what's her name? Emma. Emma Stone. Emma Stone. (laughs) Emma Stone. It's got Emma Thompson in it as well. And because I'm, I lived in London for a long time. It's got yeah. you know, the London vibe in it, and you see places in London and the amazing music that reminds me of my parents. And oh wow, growing up, uh, you know, they loved all their sort of '60s, '70s music. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's a good one. I love that movie. I think I watched it. I watched it far too many times. And then I watched 101 Dalmatians after that. And it's sort of like the whole story of whole understanding of Cruella. I think we must understand her character quite a lot. Mm. And I think that backstory really gave um, an understanding into her character far better than I think any other Disney movie has done when it comes to villains of movies. Yeah, and I think that's what I love about it because I'm so interested in, in the psyche of people and yeah. everybody's behavior is meaningful. You know, no, even yeah, bad yeah. behavior, what we consider to be bad behavior, I think it always comes from a meaningful place if we would truly understand a person. So yeah, I yeah. get what you're saying. Yeah, no, I think she she is amazing, especially the way that Emma, um, Emma Stone was able to play her and just sort of bring her character to life. I think it's amazing to see, um, see the visual aspects that they're able to sort of understand, make us understand. Um, so the next one is a favorite podcast of yours. I've been a long-term fan of The One You Feed with Eric Zimmer. Um, okay. It's a personal development, self-help, mm-hmm. lots of meditation teachers yeah. uh, interviewed on there. It's, it's been a great guide for me as a teacher um, and also just as a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that sounds really interesting. So they basically talk to different people on who are in meditation who teach meditation okay. um or in any kind of personal development arena oh, wow. yeah That's so amazing. come from all different <clears throat> excuse me all different backgrounds but really interesting yeah no that does yes. sound really interesting mm. it sounds really calming as well it's to really super calming. <laughs> and i always recommend to my students to listen to either that one or there's another one called 10 percent happier okay with, with dan harris and just listening to people talking about meditation and different yeah. strategies and tools or uh, concepts, super helpful for your practice. Yeah, no, I think especially if you have to have the voice for it for a podcast as well, if you have that calming voice that sort of comes in as, okay, I really want to listen to you. I really want to keep listening. So I think it's always, um, podcasts have that way of doing it where if they have the perfect person to voice it, then it comes out as something that you just want to continue to hear, which is, um, it's always interesting to see the different ways that people talk on a show and the different some people are very upbeat some people are very slow and very just okay I'm going to be talking for this amount of time and it's I'll take my time I'll speak very softly and it's it's really nice to see the difference between mm-hmm. the two mm-hmm. uh, so the next one is a famous role model that you have now this is a tricky one because I don't know that she's famous here and okay. she's in her 80s now in the UK but she was my former boss. Okay. <laughs> her name's Dr. Miriam Stoppard and she she was sort of a pioneer for media doctors so okay. you know well-known doctors on TV and in the paper yeah and she still has a column in a national newspaper oh, and wow. has done for decades. Yeah. Um, 
she's written 70 books and they've been translated into 15 different languages wow in the area of childcare um, mm -hmm. women's health parenting wow pa pregnancy so it's really interesting that was one of my first jobs out of university yeah um, my first degree and I loved supporting her and her work. She was just a fascinating woman who came from very little mm -hmm. and was just so determined and talented and driven. Wow, it's amazing that she can. she's still writing and she's still talking about something that she's so passionate about even down the line, even until now. So that's, that's amazing to see. Yeah, and I think what I love is that she, when she became pregnant, that became her focus. When mm -hmm. she had children, parenting became her focus of her mm -hmm. writing. When she went through menopause, you know, and she just followed her life, yeah, and studied re research and and put um, it into a form that the layperson can understand. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you follow her life, you can probably see how much she's grown in that amount of time from when she started. So that's mm. that's an amazing journey for her to have as well. Yeah, and I feel so fortunate that she employed me to be her assistant yeah. for a few years. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. Um, so the next one is a favorite course that you've completed. Now, this is so random, but I did a, um, I did a special effects makeup course Ooh. at the London College of Fashion. Wow. Uh, again, that was in my early 20s before I'd kind of got into um, a more serious career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just playing around and it was really fun. And uh, I met someone that did special effects for Harry Potter and wow. yeah, it was really interesting and um, creative, just a nice creative outlet. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's an amazing course. When you said that it was obscure, it is very, <laughs> it's very, obscure. it's very different, but <laughs> no, I, I love that it's such a, it's something that you can, that you don't have to take into everyday life, but you can just know that you've done it and know that you've experienced it. I think it's, I think that's what a lot of courses are and we don't really realize it. And it's amazing how much we learn from just small courses and how much we take from that as well. So it's, it's a nice way that, that you tried, you tried, okay, this could be something that you want to do. And then you find other things and it's like a interest that you just keep wanting to figure out whether you're interested in it or not. So, yeah, and I've always been a bit playful like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's really, that's really, that's a really cool way to sort of take your career into another direction as well. Yeah, and, and you know, you meet people and, and it makes me think now, just like you were saying earlier about expectations and following the path and everything's got to yeah. be some, somewhat productive and yeah. sometimes just doing something that's fun and playful and just seeing where it takes you. Yeah, I yeah. think I think especially when you're in, like no matter what stage you are in life, I feel like you can always just sort of try again. You can always just have, okay, you want to change careers, go change the career and find out what you want or study something mm. and find out what you want to do. Yeah, And a lot of places I think are very fortunate to be able to keep changing and figuring out what you want to do. So, and um, that leads us in really well to our interview questions for today. Um, now in the aspects of parenting, everyone has a very different definition as mm. to what parenting is to them. So how would you personally describe what parenting is? I like the word raising, raising children. Mm -hmm. Because I think, I, I consider as a parent, it's our role to to, to allow them to grow mm -hmm. and to create the conditions that will allow them to grow in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get that perfectly right, of course. Yeah. But we have this intention of tending to their emotional needs, tending to their 
um, psychological needs, tending mm-hmm. to their learning needs and spiritual needs and just being aware and present mm-hmm. and just creating the space for them to be who they really are. Mm-hmm. And I think that this varies from this idea that we have to give kids things and we have to make them something. Mm-hmm. I think we just make the space and allow them to grow mm-hmm. and just tend to the needs as they arise. That's that's an amazing, I think that's such an interesting answer, especially when it comes to, like we hear a lot of people come onto the show when they talk about, oh, it's about, about us being a mentor. It's about us um, sharing our own experiences and making sure, or making sure they don't make the same mistakes and the same misadventures that each of us had and trying to have that place for them to grow. But I love the idea of just, we don't have to keep giving them things. We don't have to keep um, putting a career down their throat, putting an idea into their head. It's more like, okay, there's a space for you to create something that you want to create what would you like to create? And just giving them that time to really figure out what they want instead of what we want for them. Mm. And I think that's such a different way of parenting to the way that um, that it used to be, that it used to look like where, okay, there's an idea that parents tell the child what they what to expect, tell the world, tell the child what they are wanting for them, what they are wanting them to be, what things they're wanting them to do, what interests, what hobbies, and forcing so many different, I think, extracurricular activities down their throat. And that still happens to some extent, but I think it's definitely different in a way of us sort of understanding that a child has to be a child and figure out what they want, not what we are wanting them to be. And then we nurture what they want. Yes. As best we can. And that's sort of the other side of it is they, I think our children raise us. Mm-hmm. I think our children force us to grow. Yes. And it's our resistance to that growth and the resistance to sometimes the things that they bring up for us that we we haven't resolved or we haven't healed or that are, are very um, triggering for us. Mm-hmm. It, they're gifting us an opportunity to grow. Yeah. And I'm sort of weaving this together with what you were saying before about, you know, we always we can always do something new. We can always <laughs> learn something new and get curious about a different topic Yeah, because we are growing. <laughs> and so we grow with our children and our children. Oh, my goodness. They will challenge us. <laughs> and if we're not up to it, we're, we are going to be um, we're going to find parenting really difficult. Yeah. So what do you think that expectant parents are needing to be aware of when they're going into that early journey of parenthood and sort of what to expect, expect from them? I'm hesitant to say (laughs) it's going to be messy. Yeah. Um, And I think it's helpful. It's it's such a beautiful experience Mm -hmm. to see this newborn baby. And all being well, the baby's well. And mm-hmm. you see this beautiful baby. And, it's, and before that, it's growing inside of you. And it's a fascinating experience. I certainly found it fascinating, a fascinating experience. Um, and then we, we're going to find that we are, we're out of our depth. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we can't control them. We can't control everything about the way that they're going to respond to situations to mm-hmm. um whether you know even just understanding whether they're hungry or what it is that they need yeah um so being able to surrender your need for control 
uh, try that. <laughs> and if you can practice mindfulness uh, before you have children, it's, it would be a really helpful thing to have some knowledge of before <laughs> you have your children. Um, but it's beautiful and it's big and it's messy and it's going to wake you up <laughs> and let it wake you up. <laughs> I think especially when you're talking about a little earlier, we were talking about um, it sort of will bring up previous traumas for you or bring up. I think that's a lot of, um, and I hear that a lot. I've got a couple of friends who went through pregnancy and who have kids now and they're like, there's so much more worry than I ever thought that I would expect from when I had them from like the minute that they came into my life, the minute that I'm responsible for them. There's so much trauma that, brought up where it's like, I'm scared that I will mess this up. I'm scared that I will put on the same trauma that I was brought with and sort of pass that down to them and what kind of habits they I want them to pick up and what kind of way, like the whole idea of gentle parenting, I think is a big, it's not just a trend now. I feel like it's a way of, it's a lifestyle that a lot of people are just trying to implement in order to make sure their child is emotionally stable. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of generations before us even forgot about. We didn't even have, I don't think they had an understanding as to what emotional stability was. We had, like, I think we spoke about that earlier. We had that whole understanding of we're just going to be doing what we're supposed to be doing. And that's the way that things are supposed to go. And that's what we're supposed to do. And there's all those um, expectations that are put up on us. So we're talking about bringing up traumas, making sure that there was no expectation put on this child, but also making sure they know that they have to build their life. And it's like a lot of my friends who are having kids who are in now, they're just starting school. They're like, how do I balance the idea of them being them while also making sure they understand rules they understand the fact that this is how society is run like we don't go biting kids in order to get attention that's not something that the way that we're supposed to be acting or behaving and there's that whole idea of wanting to be gentle while also wanting to be a disciplinarian and making sure they're not doing anything wrong mm. and not letting that habit continue so yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a big thing it's a huge thing and i mean i'd say being conscious and that's why i'm I was touching on being mindful, mm -hmm. so paying more attention or curious parenting, mm -hmm. conscious, curious parenting. So just becoming really sensitive to what you're noticing inside of yourself. Mm -hmm. So how is this affecting me? What what kind of thoughts am I having? What's this experience that I'm having? Um, what kind of emotion is this bringing up for me? Mm -hmm. Before we then spring into trying to manipulate the child's behaviour, mm -hmm. um, they're expressing something that's necessary for them. So we want to re be respectful of that. Yeah. And I think this all ties in with this idea of self-compassion because the the most important thing when, when we're self-compassionate is that we're curious. Mm -hmm. Curious overrides our tendency to be judgmental. Mm -hmm. To go, that's bad and that's good. And my child's bad for doing that. And and I'm bad, and, and mo ma mo sorry, mainly yeah. this is because we are judging ourselves all the time. Yeah. And that then gets squeezed out of us and then put upon our children. Yes. So without, that, without being curious about how we're relating to ourselves 
we're, we're going to find it harder to notice how we're relating to mm-hmm. our children. Yeah. And that's why self-compassion, the idea that self-compassion is selfish is kind of ludicrous to me. What you're doing through being self-compassionate is to notice mm-hmm. when you are struggling. Mm-hmm. So you get curious about when you are struggling, when you are suffering. And that sounds so simple, but yet most of us kind of clang about in a state of being uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and we don't don't necessarily realize that we're having a hard time. So we mm-hmm. have to catch that. And then we can respond to ourselves with kindness. Mm-hmm. We're wanting to then tend to our difficult emotion, our difficult experience with kindness. Yeah. And we're also wanting to recognize that this is a common human experience, mm-hmm. that other people have this too. Mm-hmm. And and then that just softens us. Yeah. So that then we can see our child with more compassion also. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. Like we're talking about self-compassion. How would you go ahead and define what the idea of being self-compassionate to yourself is? So sim- so simple, but yet so hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> the the concept of self-compassion is, in essence, treating oneself with the grace, respect, kindness, care, mm-hmm. love that you would treat someone that you care about. Mm-hmm. If we just listen to that phrase again, it's kind of crazy mm-hmm. because we find it so hard to mm-hmm. treat ourselves with the kindness, care, respect, encouragement that we would treat somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really wanting just to treat ourselves with that with with respect and give ourselves a break and be on our own side, um, mm-hmm. particularly when we're having a hard time. So when we're having a hard time, we're often thinking, so the situation is bad and life is, you know, it's going to throw some difficult situations at you. Yes. That's just the way yeah. things are. Mm-hmm. So there's an acceptance of that. But the second piece is that we're then punishing ourselves for the fact that we couldn't control life. Yeah. We couldn't control these circumstances. We couldn't control this thing that's happened to us. Mm-hmm. So our kids throwing <laughs> throwing a tantrum yeah. and we'll, we may find that we're also having a bit of a tantrum inside and blaming ourselves for this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if only I'd given them dinner earlier, if only I'd, you know, yeah. played with them a bit more. Yeah. And so we, we, we become really hard on ourselves. And so what that does is perpetuate a stress response. Mm-hmm. So it actually activates your nervous system. So you, you feel more inflamed yeah. um, than is probably necessary to deal with the situation. And so what we're, what we're doing with self-compassion is simple definition is we're treating ourselves with care and kindness. Mm-hmm. And that would soothe, and that soothes us. Yeah, mm. it's, it sounds very simple. And I think we hear that phrase a lot, treat yourself how you would treat others. And I think the way that we, from what I'm sort of understanding, there's that way it's so different that we're treating other people with the same kindness. We're talking to people nicely. We're trying to treat other people with respect, but we can't quite grasp the fact that why don't we do that as a natural practice to ourselves? It seems such a interesting concept to put into practice into every day where it's like, oh, I should have done that. I should have done it. If I did it earlier, then I could have done other things the later time. But if we were to say that to someone, we would know that they would put us in a 
put us in our place and say, you don't have to talk to me like that. You don't have to say that to me. I know I could have done it earlier. And it's like we have that inner conscious to know not to treat people like that. But why do we treat ourselves in that same way where it's like we treat ourselves harshly. We treat mm. ourselves with not with not taking that time to really understand. And maybe it's that understanding of that this is what we're this is what our duty is, what our responsibility is, and what doesn't get done. Like I I think I spoke a little earlier on another episode where we talk about to-do lists and having that to-do list. And if we don't get that five things done, we feel like we're the most, we failed on that day. Cause it's like, oh, okay, I didn't do that. That means I couldn't do the next thing that I need to do tomorrow, which means I have to do some of those stuff tomorrow. And oh, it's just, oh, it's, or it's just, oh, it's just five things. I could have done those five things very quickly, but I didn't. And it's like, oh, put laundry away. And I didn't do that. And it sounds so simple, mm -hmm. but it isn't. And we're taking out the emotional factor to it where it's like, okay, maybe I wasn't emotionally um, able to put it away or maybe I just wasn't there in the right headspace to be able to put it away. And we get so angry at ourselves where it's like, okay, that to-do list. And I hate, that's why I hate to-do lists. Mm. I, will say, I will say that in every episode, no matter what, that I absolutely hate the way that to-do lists are styled where it's like, it's gonna make us feel bad if we don't get it done. It's going to make us feel like we're not doing enough if we don't get those five things done. And it's it's really frustrating to see that there are so many people who thrive on to-do lists because <laughs> it's like, okay, yes, you thrive on it. You're getting all that stuff done, but are you okay doing it? Mm. And we get lost in that. We sort of separate what the list says and what we want to do. Like, oh, maybe, but did you sort of take a step back and just... I don't know, maybe make a cup of tea to just listen, listen to the radio or listen to some music while you're getting things done or just focus on getting those five things done and you're not able to really enjoy the day. Like, did you go out for a walk? Was that something on your list to be able to have that, um, the amount of fresh air that you're supposed to have? And we get sidetracked in that quite often where it's like what we're meant to do and what we're really, our body is really telling us to do. Yeah, I mean, there's such a focus on being productive and being mm -hmm. perfect. Yeah. Um, and we truly believe that we can be perfect. I think that's partly, partly the problem. And, and you know, like if we think about the, that moment where we've not quite got the to-do list done yeah, and we listen inside our heads or we look inside our heads and we have this image of the person who would have got it all done yeah. and we're just not them. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates this suffering, this sort of, resistance to self I'm a bad person yeah um whereas you know more recently I've been more self-compassionate and go oh I, I could, maybe I'll just put two things on my list and mm -hmm. I really have to resist putting the third one on <laughs> be realistic there you know that 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 in itself is being self-compassionate I'm like thinking about my future self yeah and wanting to look after her so yeah. she's not beating me up later on that's a good way of thinking about mm -hmm. it thinking about how would the future self really recognize that and would it be positive would it be negative outcome for that and i think we we lose sight of that quite often we're mm -hmm. thinking in the moment oh we can get those 10 things done on the list where we really we know that realistically we can't really get those things done because there's so many other things that we need to do that's not on the list mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and especially when you're a parent yes yeah. no the, the parent thing will throw you off quite a lot always. <laughs> yeah always so how would you go ahead and really put 
self-compassion in the context of parenting? Well, like I said, parenting is a messy business. Yeah. And on a daily basis, I would say for me and my family, and I, I'm pretty sure for many in their families. In fact, I did a talk at a, a school recently. There were, about, there were over 100 mums there. And I said to them, who, who had a difficult morning? <laughs> and they all put their hands up. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we forget this. And I was talking about self-compassion and saying, we forget that it's difficult for everybody. We have to really remember that in the moment yeah. instead of thinking, oh, I bet this person down the road isn't having the same problems with their kids as I am with my kids. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're not, but they're certainly going to be having some cha- challenges. Yeah. Um, so in the context of parenting, self-compassion is recognising that parenting is hard. Mm-hmm. It, it's an acceptance, an acknowledgement that parenting is is going to bring up some big emotions for you. Yeah. It's going to make your plate full mm-hmm. at times it's going to throw your plans off yeah you know um when your kids don't want to go to the thing that you want to take them to or um they're not playing ball and getting their shoes on in the morning it's, there's all sorts of stumbling blocks yeah that are going to be part of your journey as a parent and and so self-compassion being this being being able to be with yourself mm-hmm. connected to yourself and kind to yourself when you are suffering mm-hmm. It's it it's perfect for parenting. Yeah, we need we really need it. It's um I'd say it's my number one practice mm-hmm. as a parent to just hi, like um, interrupt that pattern of beating myself up yeah. or f- getting over inflamed with my kids and just reminding myself that you know everybody has a difficult time. Mm-hmm. And can I be kind to myself in this moment? Mm-hmm. What do I need? And the most self-compassionate question is to ask yourself, what do I need right now? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing just how simple that question can be and how simple it can seem, but it will bring up so many different emotions alongside that. So why do you think that self-compassion is really needed in parenting and sort of implemented into a parent's everyday life? I think it's really important because we can get so dysregulated. Mm -hmm. So when our children are kicking off, when we're running late for work and we've we've got an emotional disaster in the (laughs) backseat, we are going to find that our body, our nervous system is dysregulated. Mm -hmm. If our children... And so I'm kind of also talking about why it's not selfish in in, in my answer here... Mm -hmm. If our children observe us losing it regularly, mm-hmm. they are learning the same thing, the same ways of responding to stress as we, yeah. as we model to them. Okay. So this is why I, I just cannot, I, 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 I can't swallow the idea that it's selfish. It's, it's, it's just implicitly necessary in parenting because we want to model to our children how am I going to be kind to myself how am I going to move through this emotional challenge Mm -hmm. in a way that's healthy skillful um and that allows me to still be supportive of myself yeah how can I get my needs met in a safe supportive healthy way Mm -hmm. um and so we are not only supporting ourselves through doing it, so regulating our nervous system, 
So we know that the practice of self-compassion often includes physical touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so for some people this is a bit sickly, but you might yeah. place your hands on your heart mm-hmm. and it really soothes the system. It can really soothe the system and it um, elicits what's called the mammalian caregiving system. Okay. So we are, we are mammals Yeah. Um, and we forget that. We forget that we're animals. <laughs> we don't like the idea of it. But when a child is upset, Mm-hmm. or when a baby ape is upset and the mother might cradle the baby. Mm-hmm. And so that elicits this kind of kind, um, relaxed mm-hmm. response. It helps to release oxytocin into the system. So if, you're, if your body's elevated, mm-hmm. if your stress levels are high and you just place your hand somewhere on your body, so for many people it's their heart and they take a deep breath, I like to just squeeze my arms mm-hmm as a gesture of comfort, yeah. um, taking some deep breaths. Um, this can just help regulate your nervous system. Okay. So when we're having a stress response, particularly in relation with our children, we will have this uh, physical experience of maybe an elevated heart rate, um, tension, uh, and some discomfort in the torso. So emotional spots where we're often feeling tension or discomfort mm-hmm. would be in the throat, the chest or the belly. Okay. Um, solar plexus. So just through the torso. Yeah. So this can feel very, very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So giving yourself some kind of comforting touch, taking some deep breaths, maybe even moving the body in a, in a, um, a way that helps to release some of that physical tension mm-hmm. could just help you drop down a, a few la- levels on the stress scale. Mm-hmm. Also, when we're having that stress response, our thoughts reflect our state. Okay. So there's this phrase, story follows state. We okay. often try to change our thinking, but when our body is in a dysregulated state or if it's in a um, hyperarousal state, it's quite difficult to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when I'm teaching meditation, I talk about relax the body to calm the mind. So mm-hmm. work with your body before you work with your mind. But the thoughts that you're likely to be having may be self-critical and they may be um, shaming and blaming. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to protect you. It's so interesting because we're in a threat defense response. Mm-hmm. We've perceived that our child potentially is a threat to us. And so we may be going into sort of seeing them as a, an enemy. Yeah. And we may be having critical thoughts about them. At the same time, we may be having critical thoughts about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we, we we have this physiological response and then we have this mental response too. And so practicing self-compassion will help to just bring down the level of stress. Mm-hmm. And as the state of the body changes, the types of thinking we have may change. Now, that's going to help us in relationship with our children because we may then move into a way of thinking about our children that is less defensive or aggressive and we can see the situation with greater um, perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is hard right now. Yeah. Because in that state, the other thing we do is we jump to the future, like, oh, my child's going to be the most awful teenager. (laughs) Or, you know, they're never going to get a job because they can't do, you know, can't even put their shoes on and pack their school bag. Yeah. This is crazy kind of thinking and it's illogical. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's how the mind works when we are under 
stress when we're having what we sometimes call a stress response, fight, flight or freeze response. Yeah. Um, so self-compassion in the context of parenting is so helpful because it can help bring that bring our system back to a state of being regulated. Okay. Just like if, you know, I, th- I think you said something earlier about how we wouldn't talk to someone that we care about in the way that we talk to ourselves. Yeah. It's yep. like if your kid's kicking off and doesn't want to leave the house and you're trying to get to an important meeting um, and, you know, you're getting really fret- fretting with them. Yeah. We really need to fret with them. Um, and your friend comes in and goes, oh, you're such a shitty parent. <laughs> um, you know, and you know she's going to be a disaster as a teenager. Yeah. Just wouldn't, how helpful would that be to you? No. So now you've got this additional stressor of your own inner critic. Yeah. But if you think of it as an external voice, it has the same effect. So it's like you're just adding an extra stressor in there. Yeah. Um, so self-compassion helps to dilute the power of that. Now, I'm not saying it's easy because when you're dysregulated, when you're in a threat defense response, mm. those narratives are intoxicating. Yeah. They feel so real. Mm-hmm. And this is partly why self-compassion can be so challenging for people because they, in that moment of discomfort, of thinking we're a bad person, we don't want to let go of that belief because it feels like that's the threat. Mm-hmm. But the crazy thing is the threat is us. Oh, so it's our own self. Our own in, our own inadequacy yeah. becomes a threat. Okay. So, uh, you know, like if... I'm, I'm, I become a problem. I'm not able to deal with this situation. Yeah. You're incapable. You're, uh, okay. so again, if you take it to, okay, you've got your daughter on the couch and she's not playing ball. <laughs> she's getting really grumpy with you and doesn't want to come, yeah. come along to, you know, in the car with you and you're screaming your head off. Uh, and then you've got this inner voice of saying you're, a, and, or, and think of it as an external voice as you're a terrible person. Yeah. And you're going to be late for that meeting and you're always late for that meeting. It's almost the threat is my incompetent self as well as this inner critic, as well as this child who's causing or seemingly causing all the problems. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. There's just so so much complexity to it. So then when we can bring ourselves down to just being, oh, this is a really difficult moment. Yeah. (laughs) And so this might lead into a nice, simple way of practicing. Mm This is a really difficult moment. Can I be kind to myself in this moment? I, you just have to catch it. Yeah. And this is the first piece of developing um, self-compassion is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So mindfulness is essentially paying attention to what's happening in the present moment. And okay. as we become more attuned to our bodies, we're more likely to feel that dysregulation, it's uncomfortable that it, as it is, and catch it. Mm-hmm. And then once we catch it, we can get really curious about it. Yeah. Curiosity, as I said before, alleviates the judgment. Yes. So we cannot be curious and unkind at the same time. No, that's One of my true. favorite quotes. Yeah. We cannot be curious and unkind at the same time. They counteract each yeah. other. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're leaning into the experience. Wow. No, it's it's a really amazing way of thinking about it, especially when you're terms of, I think you were talking about earlier, we're trying to teach a child how to be kind to yourself and you're talking about teenagers and the amount of stress that they go under if you they don't know how to handle that kind of pressure without being kind to yourself to themselves that's also going to be a job that 
you missed out on being able to teach them how to do it and that's going to pass on and it's going to be such a and then you end up thinking oh they're not going to be able to do anything in life and then it'll be something more on you because that's something that you could have done earlier to teach them okay if i'm not kind to myself they're not going to see me being kind to myself they're going to see me break down as an emotional wreck just because i'm not able to understand that that's not the reality that the reality is more than what i can handle at that moment and that child's going to be seeing that as something that's a normal way of going about life and sort of understanding that okay i'm not able to handle this i'm just still not going to be able to do any of it at all or i have to persevere through the amount of things that i'm just not able to do and get things done rather than listening to yourself and saying okay this is what i can get done today this is what i can get done tomorrow and sort of stretch out the workload so that they're emotionally stable in order to complete the task at, at all mm. and it's it's amazing because i had this conversation with my mom a little while ago when we were having a discussion on sort of being emotionally stable and being that um because she's learning how to be self-compassionate and she's learning now and it's not something that we learned as a kid because it's not something she knew about and she had no idea what being self-compassionate meant what sort of meditation and just being mindful of every task that you're doing um and it's something she's learning now and it's like if she and we had that conversation she was just like if i had learned this a little bit earlier if i had learned this throughout your childhood she she brought it onto herself to say maybe my maybe my sister wouldn't have anxiety or maybe there wouldn't be a lot more stress on you to figure out where you wanted to go and i'm like well, you can't change the past you can't go back and say you wish you could have done that mm -hmm. because it's not something that you're able to do now and yes okay we grew up with anxiety and we grew up anxious and worrying about a lot of things but it's also we grew up knowing that's what anxiety is knowing that's okay there are things that could make us anxious and we have to learn to sort of deal with it and go along with it and try to make the best now, but we're learning it now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the important thing where we're able to have that discussion and just open up and say, this is how I'm feeling. And this is the stuff. Cause I remember growing up, we have tasks to get done, chores to get done, and we needed to get them done. There was no, I'm not feeling well, or I'm not able to do it because that's mm -hmm. what she learned growing up and that's what the previous generation learned and it's amazing to see how um how much of an opportunity it is now to really open up and say am i able to get this task done or get things done am i able to also live a life where i actually have hobbies that i want to learn if i um my sister's really seen taking up roller skating as well so she's doing that as a um to calm her anxiety down and that's something that she loves learning to do so now she's able to implement that into her life and it's just being self-compassionate because it's not something she needs to do but something she wants to do and sort of separating so self-compassion it's it is sort of separating the needs and the wants and what has to happen compared to what you want to happen and things like that Self-compassion generally is relating to our needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So because we're suffering, so yeah. it's related to suffering. So the word compassion comes from the Latin word, which means with suffering. Okay. So com party. Yeah. Um, so the word passion actually means to suffer. Yeah. This is interesting. 
Um, and so our understanding of that word is to be with the suffering, mm-hmm. with a wish to alleviate it in some way. So in your sister's case, um, maybe slightly different, but there's something around her need for f- freedom mm-hmm. or her need for play yeah, or her need to feel, um, you know, self-expression. These are fun- they're fundamental mm-hmm. needs that are often pushed aside, mm-hmm. particularly if we've been brought up in a way that, you know, we've had to be task, you know, completing tasks in order to remain in favour with our family. Yeah. Um, and this is what's so interesting about when we get curious and about our own patterns, why we're resistant to certain emotions, because mm-hmm. they, again, they may not have been allowed or they may have been punished or yeah. we, we were, we're often just unconsciously just re- repeating mm-hmm. um, these patterns from earlier on in our life. Yeah. And so when those big emotions come up, this is why um, compassion is to be with that. Okay. With more curiosity. Because most of us don't understand our emotional life. Yeah. And that's why it's so beautiful that you're describing what I would call like a, a, a repair with your, you, your, yourself and your mum. Mm-hmm. You know, it's over a long period of time. And, yeah. and you know, how beautiful that your mum's reflective yeah. over something she's discovered now and it's so it's also interesting to me because when I first discovered self-compassion I bawled my eyes out yeah. for my past self yeah how I'd been so you know had eating disorders and a lot of anxiety and yeah. a lot of self-criticism and I the the idea that I could have been kind to myself there was also a sadness because there was a regret for not having had that earlier and having suffered so much yeah. Um, un- unnecessarily, mm-hmm. but because I was repeating yeah. um, patterns from my my family's, um, their own problems and yeah. difficulties with emotion. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the specific strategies or even some of the techniques that you have that parents can use to really cultivate self-compassion and really put it into an easy everyday practice. Uh, there's two that are coming to mind okay. um, that are nice and simple and short. Mm-hmm. And the first I alluded to a little bit earlier, but I'll make it a little bit more succinct. Um, it's called the self-compassion break. So Kristen Neff is a w- really well-known mm-hmm. self-compassion researcher. She's the queen of self-compassion. Yeah. Uh, she works, she's an associate professor for the University of Texas. Anyway, she's developed some amazing resources mm-hmm. uh, in this field. Uh, and one of her meditations or practices um, that you can do on the spot is called a self-compassion break. Okay. And it's a, a short practice that you can do in just a couple of minutes or you can, if it's if it's after a storm has passed. <laughs> so sometimes think about um, when things are difficult in parenting, like little storms or the weather's been really squally or, <laughs> or yeah. hairy. And then we have that moment afterwards to just give ourselves a moment of Mm self-compassion so the practice is to go through the three elements of self-compassion so the first is to acknowledge that we've had a hard time so this is the mindfulness piece Mm -hmm. Um, and we might do that by placing a hand on the chest or somewhere on the body Mm -hmm. and just hold ourselves for a moment Mm -hmm. taking a breath and then acknowledging this is a really difficult moment uh, everybody, so this is the, the, uh, the a second part of 
of the practice or part of self-compassion is to recognize that common humanity yeah. that everybody suffers that everybody has a hard time at times mm -hmm. this isn't too so sometimes we say that kind of thing to minimize yeah well that person's got it worse or yeah you know everybody has a hard time sometimes it's not to do that it's actually just to help us feel remain connected so we take a moment we acknowledge this is a difficult moment and um, everybody has difficult moments suffering is a part of life mm -hmm. um, and then we offer ourselves some kind phrase so something like may I be kind to myself in this moment mm -hmm. or um, you know you're doing the best you can and what do you really need and so it's just some kind phrases that could be supportive some people like to say their name mm -hmm. so I might say oh Beth this is this is difficult oh Beth I really feel for you right now and it mm -hmm. might seem a little bit weird to begin with. It's sort of talking to yourself yeah. as if you're somebody else. Um, but just referring to yourself in a kind, gentle way. Mm -hmm. And if that, so that's that's really it. Just to, to take a moment, to take some deep breaths, to touch the body in some way. Recognize what's going on. Mm -hmm. So acknowledge um, what am I feeling? And then saying these, these phrases. Mm -hmm. So this is difficult. Everybody has, everybody suffers. May I be kind to myself. Mm -hmm. um, if it's hard to do that, it's sometimes helpful to bring in what I call like um, a compassionate friend into your mind. So somebody I know who would be caring, say some caring things to me right now. Mm -hmm. What would they be, what would they say to me right now? And see them okay. in my mind. Yeah. Um, so that's one little practice, the self-compassion break. Another one that's even more simple. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is particularly in the context of parenting. So if you feel that there's been a bit of a rupture between yourself and your child, um, it's called a one for me, one for you breath. Okay. So you breathe in for yourself. So that's one for me. And, and then breathing out and then one for you. Breathing out. And actually one of my favorite ways to do this is in for me, breathing in. In for me and breathing out, out for you. Mm -hmm. Imagine that you're just, you're soothing and supporting yourself. And then you're soothing and sending kind wishes to the other person, to your child. Wow. So I think like it comes with a lot of acknowledgement to the fact that this is a really difficult situation. And I think that's where a lot of people sort of get stuck. Mm. Which, the simple thing is just acknowledging the fact that it's difficult. Because usually we're into quick problem solving mode and we need to figure out what the solution is going to be without even acknowledging that there is a problem to begin with. And I always wonder why it's so difficult for us. Like it seems so easy. Okay. We just need to acknowledge the fact that this is not working, that we need to find a, a, another plan to be able to work around it. But why is that so difficult for us to even acknowledge or even take a second um, to just understand the fact that this is a very difficult situation it's bizarre isn't it yeah i think it's because it feels so horrible mm -hmm. so if we actually stop and sit with the feeling it feels horrible mm -hmm. and of course with anything painful we, we resist it we want to avoid it we yeah. don't want to experience that visceral experience of a difficult emotion mm -hmm. particularly if we've grown up in a household where emotions were shamed or 
we were mistreated or there's any form of trauma related to emotions. So we can feel that in our nervous system as being terribly uncomfortable. So in part, it's strange, but we find ourselves swallowed up by a whole world of concepts and thoughts mm -hmm. because we don't feel things when we're thinking. Yeah. If we're spending most of our time thinking, we're not feeling. Okay. It's almost because the, the mind's only got so much attention to spare. Yeah. So if we put it all into our thinking mind, mm -hmm. then we're less likely to feel it. Yeah. Um, there's actually a really helpful analogy from Buddhism when you talk about the two arrows. Um, I'm not a practicing Buddhist. I, yeah. I'm very curious about Buddhism, as I mentioned before, but it's a really helpful story that can support this understanding. So the first arrow is like life is going to throw some challenge at you. Mm -hmm. And then the second arrow, and you can't avoid the first one, unfortunately. They're going to fly from every direction, particularly when you've got children. And then the second one is your response to the first. Okay. So your response to the first could be, so it's like if you got hit by one arrow, yes, that would hurt. Mm -hmm. If you got hit by two arrows, it would hurt twice as much. Yeah. So if our response to the first is to just keep working harder, okay, to pile up, which actually piling on more stress, but we're not realizing it. Yeah. Or self-flagellation by saying horrible things to ourselves about ourselves or about other people. Mm -hmm. um, so shame and blame, these are second arrow things. Uh, or yeah. jumping into the future and just saying how terrible it's all going to be. Or falling into the habit of comparison. So that yeah. family that we know, they're always perfect. And this yeah. is just, there's just more ways of wounding ourselves for the fact that the life is just tricky yeah so the second arrow we have more choice over mm -hmm. the second arrow is not necessarily optional <laughs> i wouldn't we wouldn't be so bold as to say it's optional but it's the one that we have a little bit more control over okay so how do we respond to ourselves when we're having a hard time yeah but it's it, you have to recognize you are going to get hit by an arrow yeah so you're going to have to deal with that one and it's going to hurt yeah no it feels like especially when it comes to the idea of acknowledging it even, it sounds like a whole lot of the fact that we're admitting defeat as well. Like, okay, we're admitting defeat that it didn't work the first time around or a situation isn't working straight away. And just even the acknowledgement of each error that sort of comes hit us, we're not acknowledging the fact that it even exists. It's because we're getting hit by it. And we're getting affected by it and we're not able to we're having to defend ourselves rather than even say, okay, this one hurts. Mm. Like going straight into throwing the arrow back and saying, no, I'm not accepting this. Yeah, that's right. Resistance. <laughs> yeah. What we, what we resist persists though. And what, what, um, you know, resistance causes more suffering. So it's pain, pain times resistance equals suffering. Yeah. So if we think the more we resist it, the more painful it will actually be. Yeah. The more we will suffer. Yeah. Which is bizarre because we have this idea that everything's going to be perfect. True. Like our, our, our baseline understanding is that everything should be perfect. Yes. And anything that rocks the boat, anything that dysregulates us, anything that feels uncomfortable, we don't want it because yeah. we think that that's not how it's meant to be. And so we spend a lot of time resisting the, first, the, the idea that the first arrow has even hit us yeah. by going into, if only I'd done that differently. Yeah. And no, we're exactly. jumping into the past trying to change what's you know, the fact that there's an arrow in your chest. Yes. Oh, I think that 
it works it works in so many different ways when you think of any in any aspect not just parenting but i think in everyday life there's so many things where you can't control and so many things where you want the perfect picture and i think we look at the perfect picture as like an end goal as an end scenario as the perfect scenario mm. in a perfect world there'd be every child would have two parents in a perfect world every person would have a healthy lifestyle and a healthy mindset but that's not the case in every sense they not every person did start off with that healthy mindset with that understanding of emotional regularity of that understanding of this you can be whatever you want to be not every child grew up with that and not every person grew up understanding that and i think we get lost we get sidetracked as to what the world's expecting of us and what we're expecting of the world rather than what the reality of the situation exactly. is and that's what you're right near the beginning of like parenting's messy yeah. and if you can accept that so acceptance is a huge part of this mm -hmm. practice so yeah. i actually use the um acronym lean in mm -hmm. um and you can sort of have it and, and actually when i talk about self-compassion you can do formal self-compassion practices but you can do these kind of more on the go yeah which is perfect for parenting so this concept of leaning in is looking and listening what is happening right now so this mm -hmm. is the mindfulness piece yeah. explore it so it's curiosity explore what what am i feeling what's going on mm -hmm. that's shifting us into a state of of being more present um a, a for accepting and allowing mm -hmm. okay like it's saying yes to this even though it's not nice it's it's going to make your shoulders drop if you go oh, okay yeah this is how it is right now this is how it's going yeah and it's hard mm -hmm. and so the n is for nurture so can i nurture myself can i care for myself and i also add in needs what's the need what do i need here mm -hmm. so nurturing and and considering what the need is yeah and that goes for our children too so leaning in mm -hmm. we want to lean in when they're behaving i heard this wonderful quote um just a few days ago, but it was saying that attention seeking is connection seeking. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Because we're so often going into that threat defense. You're a problem. Yeah. You're to blame for my bad feeling. I don't want this bad feeling. It's your fault. Yeah. And they're doing the same thing to us, but they're children. Yeah. <laughs> so they need to learn, they, you know, it takes them time to learn that. Um, so they, yeah, they're, they're, they are also having a hard time. Mm -hmm. So when they, and this is the other quote that I heard, which is when they're giving you a hard time, consider that they are having a hard time. Wow. Those quotes are really hitting. They're really yeah. good, aren't they? And it's just a complete reframe of compassion, compassion, compassion. Mm -hmm. Like, can I lean into this? Yeah. And I think especially when you're talking about, um, having that need for a connection and having that need for especially the first quote i'm still trying to process that part it's just the their focus on attention is just the wanting of some kind of connection with a parent or with someone that they're could they respect or a caregiver and just sort of having that bond with them um even though they could be messing up it could be deep reason why they are a just because they're wanting that attention from the one person it truly matters from from them and it's such an amazing way of thinking about it because I mean there could be so many other reasons why they're messing up or they could be 
messing up in some people's eyes or getting attention or um, messing about, but that has that need for someone to sit down and talk with them, mm. someone to just mm. be there for them. And it shows a lot of the difference if like, if they, if every parent would just talk to their child and things like that, that would be such a, a very different aspect, I think, to understanding what a child needs and also what a parent would need and sort of having that. And I think when I had that conversation with my mom a little while ago, there was that, it was just a shoulders down, okay, this is, this argument is settled, this sort of understanding as to how we grew up and how every situation went about. And we sort of both sat down and just dissected so many different aspects because there was, there was so much that we both needed to unpack and pretty much relearn about each other because as she's opening up to so many different ways of living it's sort of opening my eyes up to what we wanted to learn and what I mean that need for connection I think was a big part where it's just like the quality time was a big part of it and that's probably why Apparently your love languages really fit in with what you didn't get as a child. And because mine is quality time, it sort of made sense quite a lot where like, okay, that need for just to spend a little moment where we're not needing anything, where we're not just doing activities where we just sat down and just sort of spoke for a little bit. And it's nice to be able to have that um, a need fulfilled now as an adult where I'm like able to talk to um, my mom and actually sit down and talk to her and that um, need is no longer is really feels fulfilled mm. which is so different to how it felt as a child where that need for attention um, came about me messing up and it was it's so nice to have that talk with her and just sort of real life realistically look at what kind of expectations she had and we had for each other growing up yeah, fascinating. That's fascinating. So I think a lot of the challenges that parents and children have is that they're put into roles. Mm -hmm. So we see our parents in a role and they see us in a role. Yeah. And we forget that we're just two humans. Yeah. And that being human is, we, we, we're all fundamentally flawed. No, exactly. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Um, and this is another thing that I recommend to um, parents when with your children to share your inner monologue mm -hmm. when you're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say that all the things that you're thinking about them necessarily, <laughs> but just say, you know, I'm f this is what I'm feeling right now, owning it mm -hmm. and helping them see that you are doing this to regulate yourself, to, to sh open up a, a channel of communication with them. Um, about your feelings and that that then gifts them the opportunity to do the same with you and certainly as they get older that you and particularly teen years you you want to have that channel of open communication yeah the teen years is where it gets tough <laughs> I haven't quite got there yet myself no. <laughs> I remember my teen years it was it was tough <laughs> in what way does self-compassion contribute to building a stronger parent and child relationship Mm, but like I was saying, yeah. you, you start to see each other's humanness mm -hmm. and you say, oh, I, I'm willing to be human with you and if you, and then you can be open and loving human with me. Mm -hmm. um, so it really helps build that loving connection between you. Okay. And I think that removing the idea of um, 
you know, you always have to have it worked out. Um, yeah. Actually, the, you know, kids want to know that you're in control. They want to know that you are able to handle situation okay so that they can feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also want to see that you're human because that does give them permission um, yeah. to share their own inner world with you, um, knowing that that's safe. Mm-hmm. And that takes time. Like I've been practicing for a long time and I'm much more curious about my emotions and I'm fascinated by other people and, yeah. and what's and what's happening for them. So I'm not saying that it's a skill that's you know instantly available to <laughs> yeah. us, but just opening up that curious dialogue about, you know, what are you thinking and what are you feeling and where do you feel it? And it, it can really help support the bond between parent and child. It seems like the hardest thing to be able to show that you have it all together but also admit that you don't have it all together because you also like you're saying you want a child to feel safe and for them to be vulnerable to you without you really being having an emotional breakdown or knowing that you can contain what they're telling you and sort of understand the fact that you for them to know that you are responsible for them and you can take care of them and whatever their emotional needs are that they can be met by you or if there's something that they want to share explicitly to you that you're able to take it. And this, it's a really difficult thing to show that you're vulnerable and open up to a child without crossing the boundary of feeling like they're looking after you. Yeah, that's, that is a really interesting concept that we then use our child as a therapist or yep. <laughs> we expect them to be able to hold our emotional baggage. Um, and there is a differentiation between that and what I'm proposing. You yeah. Know, yeah. Um, because we, 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 we have to be somewhat in control. And I think, you know, sometimes when I was thinking about particular examples, and maybe it's helpful to use an illustration of a time yeah, where, where my it. daughter was triggering me mm-hmm. to a point that I, I felt that f- that I might say something that I would regret. Mm-hmm. I was starting some of that was starting to leak out. I was trying to I was <laughs> trying to suppress it. Yeah. But so there was a point where I realized that I was suppressing the intensity of what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was not good for me. Yeah. But it's also putting me at risk of um, mirroring something to her that would not be necessarily helpful to our relationship yeah so I I said to her I I'm feeling like this is a bit too much for me like Mm -hmm. I need I need a moment she's nine so she's safe to be on her own yeah um I'm just going to go and take myself into another room and I'm going to be back I want you to know that I love you Mm -hmm. and I and I want to work this out and I want to support you in the best way I can so I'm just going to go and take myself into another room and I'll be back Mm -hmm. now my daughter is um She's an enigma. She's um, she's powerful. Okay. And I love that about her. Yeah. Um, and I grew up being told I was bossy boots and I had that squashed out of me. So I didn't, I, I, I'm protective of her ferocity. Yeah. I don't want to take that away from her. I don't think I'd have a standard chance anyway. <laughs> but um, what I find is that when we, we, it can feel a little bit like head to head yeah. when she's when she doesn't want it, when she's being defiant. Mm-hmm. And defiance, I'm putting it in quotes to be yep. kind to her because she's obviously got a need that's not being met. So I took myself into another room and I did that self-compassion break. Mm-hmm. So I 
talk kindly to myself. I took some deep breaths. I like to shake my body out if I've got a lot of restless energy. So shake my body out. Um, And then I imagined being her. So I was thinking about the things she was saying. I was thinking about the way she was feeling. I was thinking about her body language. Mm -hmm. And I sort of imagined her energy. And I realized her energy was big. Mm. And I knew as her parent, I had to match her energy. Mm -hmm. At least match it, if not be a bit bigger and stronger. Yeah. And so that, that energy can feel like anger. And, it, and pe- many of us are afraid of the, f- the emotion of anger, but Im- anger helps us protect ourselves. It helps us get our needs met. It helps us um, have boundaries, healthy boundaries. We need ang- we really need anger, but we need our anger to be healthy mm-hmm. um, and not violent, not mm-hmm. harmful. So I was feeling into her energy and I was remembering how much I love her. Mm-hmm. So... I, because in that moment, as I was saying, when you're in a fight response, you yeah. can forget that. Yeah. Uh, I've been working with a group of mothers recently and it's not uncommon. In that moment, you feel like you really dislike them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very unpleasant thought to have as a parent because you feel guilty for it. Mm. So I was remembering that the most important thing about our relationship is to maintain a loving connection. So I was feeling her energy. I'd done my self-compassion practice. And then I met her with this new energy. Mm-hmm. And I spoke from that energy. Mm-hmm. And things changed. So we know that we have something called mirror neur- neurons. You may okay. have heard of this. So this is where, your, particularly with your children, um, your child's nervous system reflects your nervous system. Okay. And it sort of dances between the two. But if your nervous system's regulated... If you're in a state of empowered energy, mm-hmm. you feel safe, then they feel safe. Wow. And so something beautiful shifted. Yeah. And then we were able to get on with the rest of the day and she could she softened because she felt held by my energy. And then she could express her feelings and what it really was that was the problem. And then we could move through it. Wow. No, that's... That's an amazing example to show that balance of she knowing that you are also feeling frustrated while also not really knowing all the frustration and not really you expressing it in a way that a parent wouldn't want a child to hear. So it's nice It's nice to see that there is a way that it can be done and there's an actual approach that it can be done in terms of a child knowing the amount of frustration that you are feeling without without knowing so much about it. Mm. Knowing the, I think, two sentences rather than the whole paragraph as to what you're feeling. So it's, when you put it into practice, how, how often would you find yourself, like you're saying that you're about to, about to burst, about to, about to blow up. How was that practice sort of going into your, daily routine of being compassionate i'd say there's a sort of this informal practice that's kind of when needs arise yeah that i'm practicing self-compassion or that i recommend people practice self-compassion i mean stress is our biggest trigger because that's what we're we're wanting to catch that yeah 
and we wanted to catch it as early as we can and we're not going to get this perfect so let's not try to be perfectly self-compassionate because then we're just going to end up in a in a, a big heap of yep. struggle um but uh what, what we want to do is be able to um integrate yeah integrate this into our day in an informal sense mm-hmm. but it can be helpful to have some formal daily practice too yeah and when i say formal i don't want you to think that it's super formal um <laughs> and and serious but it's I find it very helpful at the end of a day before I go to sleep. I do like to meditate, but you you can just do what I call a daily review. Okay. Which is just a short practice of you sitting up in bed in comfortable posture, maybe closing down your eyes mm-hmm. and just scanning through the day that's been. Mm-hmm. And it, this can be in the context of parenting, but it could be for anybody really. Um, and just to sort of think, well, what went well? Yeah. And what was difficult? And just give yourself that chance to kind of gla- glance over the day that's been and how was I with myself today? Mm-hmm. And that in itself is a bit like we're describing that, that beautiful bond between parent and child where you're just giving yourself that space to be seen and yeah, and to be listened to mm-hmm. um, and to be held. And any emotions that you maybe didn't get to process during the day, that's a safe place for them to yeah. to come up and and you know if you need to have a sob or a scream or a stretch (laughs) then that that may be a a good time to do that because what we what we know there's more and more research suggesting that repressing emotions is really bad for our health Mm -hmm. um and so and it can improve our sleep this practice too yeah so you just scan through the day and Mm -hmm. and you know you'll lightly get distracted but that's okay Mm -hmm. it's just letting your mind sort of sleepily yeah just go over what went well and maybe what could be different next time Mm -hmm. and what are some of the three good things that you could sort of list about going through this practice and just reviewing your reviewing the day what are three good things about it that you found when going through it I think a little bit like gratitude practice it makes you more aware Mm -hmm. okay you know that you're going to do that at the end of the day it makes you a little bit more aware during the day mm-hmm. of moments you know our life is just moment 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 yeah uh, we don't tend to think of it that way we're often caught up in the narrative or the story of our, the story of me yeah <laughs> um so it's helpful in that it helps us be, become more attuned to particularly when things go well mm-hmm. in the moment during mm-hmm. the day so yeah. it's helpful there as i said it's it can be helpful to release stress from the day mm-hmm. and to prepare you for sleep yeah yeah and it can just help you develop a a more attuned awareness of your inner life like your thoughts and feelings yeah it definitely feels like it'll keep you present at each like you say everything is just a moment it keeps you completely present knowing that okay this happened i need to make i can remember this and i can talk about it later i'm feeling frustrated at this time or this person really annoyed me at work or um school pickup and then I can talk about it here and I can sort of have that time to digest the situation and not really hold I think hold grudges as well it sort of lets go of that opportunity to be like okay I'm feeling frustrated I don't know when to express it and when do I have time to sort of just let it out and that seems like the best moment to do that where it's not it's also not disruptive to your everyday life where it's like I'm not going to break down at any moment and just sort of release all that energy at the worst time and take it out on somebody else. It sort of lets you take it out 
on just that situation and that little timeline in your whole story. So it's it sounds like it's really helpful to just be conscious of so many di- of so many different things. Yeah, and just I like to think of meditation as being a way of befriending yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's just like sitting with yourself as you would and listen as you would with a friend, just yeah. listening to yeah. yourself. So what challenge, what challenges sort of could arise when you're going through the practice of just just a simple review of the day, some challenges that sort of come up with that? It's highly likely that you'll go into, oh, what's on the to-do list for tomorrow? <laughs> and um, Or getting caught up on something in a less conscious way. So going back mm-hmm. and just finding yourself in shame and blame. Okay, but yeah. I also believe though with your eyes closed and making this a more intentional practice of self-compassion, you, you, you'll you notice that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, a lot of it is just noticing. It's, and as I said right near the beginning, it's not that complicated. It's just becoming more attuned to and becoming more curious about the ways that your mind behaves. Mm-hmm. So we tend to think all of our thoughts are true, mm-hmm. um, but we... By sitting with ourselves in this fairly, it's fairly informal really because you're just letting things kind of run through, mm-hmm. you just get a little bit more familiar with the behaviour of your mind. Mm-hmm. So that's why I so, say, yeah, you, your mind will wander and yes, you probably will start to try and problem solve some stuff, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's probably what's going to happen in the middle of the night if you don't do it before <laughs> you go to sleep anyway. No, that's true. Uh, there's a teacher called Lauren Roach, a meditation teacher who describes um, meditation like house cleaning mm-hmm. for the mind yeah so this this practice is a bit like that yeah no it sounds it sounds very calming very therapeutic as well to know that you can validate yourself validate your own emotions at the end of the day and just accept the fact that things didn't go right in certain areas but things also did go Right. Is it just, do you just talk about the frustrated parts that happen or is it more, it can be any highlight moment of the day? Anything, anything. You mm-hmm. just sort of let go of controlling it. Just let okay. your mind in almost like a daydreamy sense, just glance over the day. Okay. Yeah. That's and the things yeah. that still have energy will be the ones that pop up. Okay. Um. So, you know, if there's an argument or a slightly awkward conversation with a colleague earlier in the day, that might pop up yeah. because it still has energy to it. So it still has some emotion attached to it. Okay. So you don't need to control it all that much because yeah. what wants to be heard will likely come to the surface. Yeah. And how do you think that this practice has impacted your own parenting in into your everyday life? Well, I, I'm very reflective. <laughs> Probably okay. too, too, maybe too, too much of a degree. <laughs> I've always been called an overthinker, mm-hmm. but um, I think I found it really helpful because it has developed my curiosity and my metacognition and my mm-hmm. ability to, you know, really look around a, an issue my child's having. Mm-hmm. Again, like thinking about this idea of attention seeking as connection seeking. Yeah. So what is it that was difficult about that? for them Mm -hmm. so bringing them into um yeah so many benefits and certainly my relationship with myself has improved greatly from doing this and and many other practices that I have been using for a while yeah no it sounds like it's 
it sounds very like I th- I've used this word so many times, but I think it sounds very therapeutic and it sounds very. It's just unleashing a whole other side to you where you're suppressing a lot or we're having to suppress, and it's accepting the fact that things aren't perfect, mm-hmm. and without really letting it get hold control of you throughout the whole day, you have that little moment where you're able to just reflect on it and let all the frustrations out or let all the good things sort of be remembered throughout mm. the end of the day mm. as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's it can be a gratitude practice too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I talk about only the frustrations part, but I think even looking at it from the positives, being like, oh, I, I hit all the green lights on the way to work today. <laughs> I think that's even the small things. Like I definitely always remember those days where I'm able to, catch the train on time or manage to catch all the, especially the way that um, Melbourne train systems work. I think it's always great to remember even the smallest things where you had nothing going on, but you still had, um, you had made an amazing lunch for yourself today, or I had lunch with a friend today and that we ended up catching up. So yeah. we forget we, those small yeah, we parts. We do, we glaze over the good ones. Yeah. Uh, I think there's apparently five, five to one or something, maybe even wow. more, you know, one negative event. Yeah, no, that's that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Yeah. So now we're going into the open mic section of the show, and you get to talk about anything that you are passionate about, anything that you want to talk with the audience. Um, it sort of gives you a chance to talk directly to them, and just share something that you are wanting to open up about, or even share an experience that you're wanting to share. Well, this year I've been exploring a slightly different uh, program I've Mm -hmm. been creating called Transform Your Inner Critic. And I'm weaving together self-compassion, meditation and also and movement and also some process work psychotherapy, inner work. Um, So process work is an approach to psychotherapy I'm really interested in. I've been studying recently um, and it's very creative. So... Through this work, I've discovered that the inner critic, much as we don't want them, mm-hmm. often holds some of the keys to uh, becoming more empowered. Okay. So they have, sometimes the inner critics are harboring a lot of energy mm-hmm. that we're not able to express in our everyday life, particularly for women. Mm-hmm. And so this program that I've been developing gets women to explore in creative ways their inner critics. So personifying their critics, creating characters out of them, making masks even, doing some role play with them um, and starting to harness some of the that untapped energy that we may have stored in our in a world, in our in a in a psyche. Yeah. Um so yeah, it sounds a bit peculiar, but it's been it's been really interesting. Um the women that have been in the on the pilot program have really enjoyed it. Mm, no, it sounds it sounds amazing because you just it feels like you're normalizing the fact that everyone has a critic, everyone has their own critic and normalizing to a point where it no longer has an effect mm. on you. Mm. Where you talk about it so much so you're like, oh it's just it's just that person saying that same thing again and you're realizing that you've heard it a thousand times before you don't need to keep hearing it well it's interesting because it's it it, it has it has an effect mm-hmm. but the effect that it has when we know when we understand it better yeah is quite surprising mm, yeah. so it's a little bit like um how i was describing my daughter 
and how I yeah. then went in, into her energy. Mm-hmm. So when I had her energy, my energy shifted because mm-hmm. I, f- I think I felt like I was being the victim of her yeah. power. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I began to embody it, everything changed. Like it just was a, a, a big shift mm-hmm. in how I then approached the situation. Mm-hmm. So it's similar when we're working with these inner parts, so our inner critic, if we can embody it, yeah. and it does sound, I know it sounds strange, but if we can embody it, instead of letting uh, us being the victim of it, mm-hmm. and just the energy of it, we don't have to be mean, we don't have to yeah. be hard on anyone, but something about that, that um, something about that power or that energy that can really help us, um, yeah, begin to feel more fulfilled. Yeah, it seems like it holds a lot of power as well to a suppressed self, mm. a suppressed sort of mm. feeling that we are thinking, oh no, we're not allowed to be demanding because otherwise if we seem demanding, we'll seem like we're too annoying or things exactly. like that. Exactly. So it's opening up a lot of hidden, I think healing a lot of hidden wounds as well is a yeah. big part where, especially when you're told the whole bossy idea of being too bossy because you had the way that you thought is a good idea to go or just even the simple things. And that's sort of enabling that to be unleashed and understood in a way that you understand it now. Mm-hmm. So no, that sounds, it sounds like an amazing um, new way of thinking and even understanding how life goes and how you own feel. So that sounds like an amazing program. Mm, I'm really enjoying creating it. Yeah. And I've been, I've also been offering it or offering parts of that or aspects of that to preteen girls. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I started working with some schools um, yeah. with a, a program I'm calling Being More Me. Yeah. And yeah, it's trying to catch that inner critic early. Yeah. And help girls to, particularly girls, to harness it yeah, and not let sounds, it overpower them. Yeah. No, that sounds that sounds amazing. So if anyone in the audience in the who are watching just wanted to sort of get to know that program or even message you and sort of ask questions that I know I probably have missed or something in between the lines of that. Is there a way that they're able to get into contact with you? Yeah, you can contact me via Instagram, Geelong Meditation Centre. Okay. Um, I'm also on Facebook or you can contact me via my personal page, which is Beth L. Milner. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights Podcast. Produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.